We are about to begin a a journey through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. This will take us on on a tour through most of the central doctrines of the Christian faith over the next year. This morning we will focus on chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, but I would like to read on through chapter 1, verse 14, as it is all one thought in Paul's mind as we look at that section over this week and the next two weeks. If you please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative, and the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, And believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we ask this morning that you would focus our hearts and our minds upon your word, that by the power of your spirit, your word would take deep root in our hearts, that our minds would be enlightened, that we might see the truth of it, and that we might be changed. Lord, we ask for your blessing by your word. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we begin now, this morning, one of the most beloved books in all of the New Testament, in all of the Bible. It's a book that sets forth the main doctrines of the Scriptures, both clearly and 
comprehensively. It is a book well-beloved by the saints throughout the ages. It is said that it was John Calvin's favorite book. And throughout the past few centuries, men have described it in glowing terms as a rhapsodic symphony, a great musical accompaniment to the truth of God's word, as the Grand Canyon, both deep and wide and majestic as it presents its truth. And like all of Paul's letters, it sets forth God's truth in two parts. First, so that we might gain an understanding of the doctrine of God's truth. And then second, that the doctrine might be applied to our lives. Teaching and application, two halves of the book of Ephesians. And so this morning, we come now to this text to begin to see the greatness of God's salvation and how the Lord calls a people to himself. This morning, specifically, I would like us to see three things in this opening section. The first thing I would like us to see is the saints, the one who writes and the one who receives this letter, the saints of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, I would like us to look at the elect, As Paul sets forth the great doctrine of election, of God's saving grace. And then third, I would like us to see the blessings that God gives to us through salvation, and specifically through his choosing of his people. The saints, the elect, and the blessings. Let's begin then by looking at the Apostle Paul himself. One of the saints, here the writer of this letter, as we see in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, it's important for us to remember and have a picture of who Paul is as this book unfolds. For we see the great majesty of God's work and the great scope of God's salvation when we understand that Paul himself was saved. That Paul, perhaps at the outset, would have been the least likely person that we would have thought would have been a man who would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a man who was born in Tarsus, a town in what is now southeastern Turkey, a good bit distant from the city of Ephesus, which is on the western coast of Asia Minor, or modern Turkey. He was born to Jewish parents, brought up in the synagogue, taught the doctrines of the Old Testament, memorized scripture, was under the finest of Jewish teachers. We know that one of his teachers was a man by the name of Gamaliel, who taught him the word throughout his youth. But Paul was also, interestingly enough, a Roman citizen. He was one of a very few Jews who were not only religious and followers of the Old Testament practice in the temple, he was also a citizen of Rome. You may recall in the book of Acts that this revelation alone was enough to stop a mob in its tracks as they were seeking to serve mob justice upon him. He simply said, I appeal to Caesar, and the Roman army came out to save him. He was brought up as a Pharisee. You may recall the Pharisees from our study in the book of Luke. They were a group of Jewish teachers 
who thought that they knew everything about the Old Testament law in minute detail. They not only read and memorized the law, they came up with rules interpreting the law and rules interpreting the rules telling you exactly what you could do in every moment and in every place of your life. In short, Paul was a man who had virtually everything going for him. He was religious. He was a Roman citizen. He had some measure of wealth. But even in spite of all this, Paul was a persecutor of the church. We meet him the first time in Acts chapter 7 as a crowd seeks to stone the deacon Stephen. Paul, Luke tells us, consented to Stephen's death. He was eager to see Stephen put to death for what he saw as blasphemy. Paul was so interested in seeing Stephen die that he took upon himself a job. A job to hold the cloaks of those who would throw the stones so that they might throw the stones with greater velocity and to do more damage to Stephen. Paul was a man, Luke describes, who was a madman, raging in fury against the church, seeking out wherever he could to kill not only men, but women and children in the church of Jesus Christ. It was on one such raging mission to the city of Damascus that Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul can tell us that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul was made one who was sent out by Jesus to take his truth to the world. Now, Paul was indeed a fine theologian. He is a writer of much of the New Testament, but primarily, Paul was a missionary and a church planter. He was sent out by Jesus to establish his church. And so Paul, of all people, knows what it means when he says that this was established by the will of God. You see, Paul's life made him very aware of God's initiative in his life. Paul would have never chosen this life for himself. Paul would have never sought to build up the church. He was actually trying to destroy it. And yet, God met him, turned him around. And changed who he was so much to the core of his being that he became almost unrecognizable to those that he was with before. There is also something else Paul wishes us to understand when he says, by the will of God here. He wants us to understand that all authority that he has and all of the teaching that he is about to give us comes from God. He is merely seeking to be faithful in transmitting to us the truth that God has given to him. There's also a second group of saints, as it were, those who are recipients of the letter, those who are in Christ. Now, there is a bit of controversy about the recipients. Some commentators wonder why there is no personal touch to the letter of Ephesians. After all, Paul spent multiple years there pastoring the church, There are no fond names. There's no recalling of past accomplishments. And some even think that perhaps he was only writing to a certain segment of the church, perhaps those who had come to faith after he left. 
I don't think this is the case. The best answer appears to me that this is not only a letter to the Ephesians, but it is also intended to be an encyclical letter. That is, God wrote this letter through Paul to the church at Ephesus. And Paul also directed that this letter be taken to the surrounding churches and read there as well. This would account for the fact that Ephesians is a doctrinal feast. It is full of teaching that every church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs. And Paul did not wish this to be confined merely to the church at Ephesus. But it goes out throughout that entire area. So who are these Ephesians and others who receive this letter? They are, Paul says, saints. The word saint means holy ones. But a saint is not something that we believe in common parlance. Normally when we think of someone who is a saint, we think they are special. That there's something different about them. You know, you say to yourself, that person has an incredible amount of patience. They're a saint. Perhaps you've seen the Roman church attempt to set people up as saints, as different from everyone else in the church, by ascribing to them certain amounts of miracles so that they can be declared different and distinct from everyone else. That's not what the Bible means when it uses the term saint. The word saint means to be set apart by God. And because of this, all believers are saints. And all saints are believers, set apart by the Lord himself to be a part of his people. Now this should remind us then that if we are saints, if we are called apart, if we are set apart by God, then we are called to be different from those who are around us. We are called to think differently than the world. We are called to speak differently than the world. We are called to act differently than the world because it is rooted in who we are and what God has done. These recipients are saints in the Lord, and they are also faithful, Paul says. They are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, the root here for the word faithful is the word believe. And what Paul is getting at here is that they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding us that Christians exercise faith. The Christian life begins with believing in Jesus. We become Christians, we come to be a part of God's people by putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to know that He has done a work that we cannot, and we can only find forgiveness in His work upon the cross. But the Christian life doesn't just start with believing, it continues on with believing too, doesn't it? Each and every day that we go about our lives, we have to trust the Lord. We believe in who He is. We believe in His promises that He has given to us. And so Paul says that those who receive this letter are faithful in the Lord. They trust Jesus. They are faithful, and they are faithful in Christ. Now, I find it interesting that before Paul gets to any theology in this letter, he begins with the personal relationship that the believers have with Jesus. 
This is where it all begins. Because apart from Christ, we are hopeless and helpless. But in Christ, we have all the worth that we need. You see, Paul describes the church of Jesus Christ as those who are in Christ. He then begins to describe the salvation that God has brought to his people. Describe it in terms of praise and doxology, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul begins this letter with a doxology. Now, for those of you that have wondered in that section of our order of worship what doxology means, why we sing that song, think about the song. Look at it in your bulletin. A doxology is an item of praise. That's why that song begins, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So Paul begins his letter here with one long sentence. From verse 3 all the way down to verse 14 is one long sentence of praise. It's as if as he's writing it, Paul piles word upon word and phrase upon phrase, and he can't stop praising God for what he has done. There is a, a Trinitarian aspect to this doxology. If you look at verses 3 through 6, Paul emphasizes the work of God the Father. And then in verses 7 through 10, he emphasizes the work of God the Son. And then in verses 11 through 14, he emphasizes the work of God the Holy Spirit, giving praise to the great God three in one. But there is also a note of thankfulness in this praise. A note of thankfulness that we have been blessed by the Father. And that these blessings are primarily spiritual. He tells us that these spiritual blessings come to us in the heavenly places. And he does this to remind us that our true home is with Christ and to think of the blessings that come from Christ. Now, we need this very much in our day. Because, after all, it is far too easy for us to focus upon earthly blessings over and above spiritual blessings. We believe that if there's money in the bank account, and if the car is driving well, and if our job is humming along just fine, and if our kids are getting good grades in school, that everything is great and God is blessing us. And that if somehow those things aren't happening, God has abandoned us, that he's seeking not to bless us, that he's punishing us because of what we see around us. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. Even though there are so-called preachers at so-called churches that preach a gospel that requires believers in Christ to demand stuff of God. Give me money, God. Give me good health, God. That's how I'm going to exercise my faith. Give me more stuff that I can see. But you see, not so the Apostle Paul. Paul focuses on the spiritual blessings that come to believers who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first spiritual blessing that he begins to describe is the blessing of election, of being chosen 
by God. Now, what is election? We see this here in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This word chose is the Greek word that we get the word elect from. That's what to elect means. It means to choose. When you elect a candidate, you choose a candidate. So what does election mean in the Bible? Many people are afraid of this word election. Afraid of this doctrine. And perhaps you have heard the old saying that the way election works is this. God's voted for you. The devil's voted against you. You need to break the tie. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. Because election, as we see here in Ephesians 1, has nothing to do with you choosing. It has nothing to do with you casting a vote. It has to do with God choosing. With God choosing for himself a people. You see, what Paul is telling us is that God is in charge of salvation. Look in this passage here, as your eye goes over it, how often God is the actor. That God is blessing. That God is choosing. That God is predestining. That God is redeeming. That God is forgiving. That God is lavishing. That God is making known. It is the Lord our God who is active in salvation. He is the one who is at work over and over and over again. I also find it very interesting that Paul doesn't discuss or argue this doctrine of election. He simply states it outright as divine revelation. God has chosen. He states it as something that God wants us to know, a truth that he brings to us. That God chooses his people in his own time and for his own purpose. He has chosen his people before the foundation of the world. Now what the doctrine of election teaches us are at least two things. First, it tells us that we are not as good as we think we are. You see, our thought is is that we can contribute to our salvation. That we are wise when we choose Jesus. That we are humble when we put God before ourselves. That we are working to please God. And that there is some benefit or merit in what we do. But you see, Paul says, none of this is true. Before you were born, before the world's foundation was laid, the Lord our God chose for himself a people for the only reason that it was his will and good pleasure. It is not something in us that causes God to set his love upon us. He merely by his grace sets his love upon us. And this tells us the second thing, that God is good and gracious beyond anything we can understand. Now, we can understand when someone does something good in return for having received good from someone else. I can imagine that this even occurs, for example, in our homes. Maybe not today on Mother's Day, but in many days, mom will look at the kids and say, could you please help me out here? Could you clean up a bit? Could you do the things I've asked you? I do an awful lot for you. I feed you. 
I take care of you. There's an awful lot that I do for you. Could you at least help me out here? And I think most of us who've been children or who are children understand that at that point we need to come through. Because mom has done a lot for us. And we don't want to let her down. But you see, that's not how it works with God in the scriptures. It's not that God doesn't want to let us down because we've done so much for him. We've done nothing for him. All we have done is rebel against him. All we have been are his enemies. We have hated his rule. And yet, in spite of all of our hostility, the Lord our God is good and gracious to us. He chooses us. Now, there are several objections that people often raise to the doctrine of election and God's free choice of his people. The first is that it is unjust. After all, we're Americans, and we think everybody needs a fair and equal shot at everything. We think it's just fundamentally unfair if God puts his love upon some people and not others. And we want justice. We want everybody to get their fair share. Now, there's one grave problem with that in the Bible, and that is you don't want the justice of God. You don't want what is fair and coming to you. Because what is fair and coming to you is hell, is punishment. You see, we don't want God to be just with us. We want God to be gracious with us. We want God to look past our wickedness. We want him to forgive our sins and to put his love upon us and to show us love in Jesus Christ. There's a second objection that is often raised to election. And that is that it is arbitrary, as if God is choosing willy-nilly amongst people with no reason. And I will say that from our perspective, election does appear arbitrary. Because we don't know why God elects some and not others. The Bible doesn't tell us. But that doesn't mean that God's election and choice is arbitrary. Because Paul tells us that he does this according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So you see, God does not choose arbitrarily. He chooses according to his purpose. Just because we don't know the purpose doesn't mean it is purposeless. God knows why he is choosing for himself a people. It is for his will. It is for his glory. It is to show his grace. Who are we to try to understand the mind of God? To tell God how he should act and why he should act. There is a third common objection to election. Not as much an objection as a, a warping of what the word means. There are some who have an attempt to eat their cake and have it too. What they say is, is that election is based on God's foreknowledge. Because you see, God's not a part of time. And so what God does is he looks way into the future, like some kind of Doctor Who episode. And he finds out who will believe in him, who will obey him, who will be worthy of salvation. And then he chooses that person. 
Now, there's a fundamental problem with this. That's no choice by God. He has no will in the matter. He's simply choosing according to the merit and goodness of people. And it puts us back in the same conundrum that we were in. We who are sinners, who have nothing good to bring to God, are somehow supposed to create good in ourselves that God might see it in the future and to choose us. It makes man God and God helpless. You see, what the Bible says is that in reality, we are helpless and wicked. And we cannot bring goodness out of ourselves. We have hearts of stone. We have minds that are darkened. We are lost in the darkness. And God breaks in and pulls us out of our sin and misery that we might be his people. Now, why is the doctrine of election important? Why would Paul start his letter with this? Why would the pastor spend so much time on this controversy? First and foremost, the doctrine of election stops us from boasting. Now, some say that election makes us arrogant and prideful. Look at me. God chose me more more than anybody else. But in reality, the opposite is true. Because God chooses not according to how great I am, but how great he is. You see, I can't bring anything to the table. I can't say it was my study or the verses that I've memorized or the people that I have helped or the depth of my sorrow or the amount of my tears that God has saved me for. No, it is all the grace of God. What would it be like if there was something in you that could serve as the foundation of salvation? If you could say to someone else, I'm sorry that you're not saved and you're going to hell, but you're just not as smart as me. You're just not as studious as me. If you read your Bible more like me, then maybe you'd have a shot. It would breed arrogance in us beyond belief. We would have something that we would boast of. We would be the ones that would make the difference, not Jesus. There's a second benefit to the doctrine of election, and that is that it gives us assurance of our salvation. Now think about what would your salvation be like if it started with you and was dependent upon you? If you had to start and keep your salvation, do you have any idea about your own instability? Think about if it required you to be stable and perfect all of the time. I can't even get up and make it to work every single day on time. You see, if our salvation were dependent upon us and our efforts, we would be lost. We would have no assurance. We would always be wondering when we were going to blow it. But you see, election grounds salvation upon God's choice, upon God's purpose, upon God's work, and not our own. There is a third benefit to election, and that is that it spurs us on to evangelism. Now again, some push back against this. They say, well, if you believe in election, then you must never share the gospel with anyone. Because if God's going to elect them, you don't need to do anything, do you? 
But again, if we understand biblically what election means, it means that God has chosen people for himself, and he has also chosen a means to bring them to himself. And the Bible tells us that the means that God calls his people to himself is through evangelism and the foolishness of preaching. You see, election actually spurs us on to evangelism. It gives us great hope because we know that God has his people out there. Wherever we go, God has his people. He is in charge. And think about how liberating and freeing that is. Could you imagine trying to share the gospel with someone? If at any moment you used the wrong word or phrase and your actions condemned them to an eternity of hell. I don't know about you. I don't think I would leave my house. But you see, the doctrine of election is freeing to us because it doesn't depend on us. It's not our work. It's not what we do. It's not how well we evangelize. It is that God is calling to himself a people using us as instruments. And so we can be free with the gospel, not worrying all the time if we're going to mess it up, how we're going to cause problems. This should be especially encouraging to parents. You see, the Lord has given to you children. And as you raise them, You can teach them how to eat good food. You can teach them when to get up and when to go to bed. You can teach them how to drive carefully. But at some point in your life, they're going to go off and be off on their own. And they may decide when you're not there (coughs) to have a dinner of ho-hos and cake. They may decide to run some yellow or red lights. They may decide to stay up way too late They did not get up on time. And you see, often as parents, we can blame ourselves. We've messed it up. It's our job to raise perfect little children. And when you move that into the spiritual realm, the weight is crushing. It becomes our job to make sure our kids believe in Jesus. That if we don't, we've failed. And what Paul says to you is, it's not your job to make people believe in Jesus. Not strangers, nor your children. It is your job to bring them the gospel. It is his job to choose them, to regenerate them, and to redeem them. And this gives us great comfort and hope. It's the reason why in families, even as children have wandered very far from the Lord, that parents have prayed for year upon year, decade upon decade. The mother of Augustine, The mother of John Newton, praying over and over again that God would sovereignly place his hand upon her child. This is what gives us great hope. The doctrine of election. But it is not just that we are chosen by God. You see, one of the dangers of election is of thinking about it only in a vacuum. But Paul tells us that we are chosen, that we are predestined to be a part of God's family. He says this in verse 5, that he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. See, Paul continues his praise of God, and his praise is that we are brought into God's family. And we are given the full right of adopted sons. Now, there was 
Roman law at this time, that if you adopted a son, they became a part of your family, and they also received all of the rights of a natural-born son, all of the title to the property, all of the rights to the name, everything that a natural son would have had, the adopted son received. Now, I wonder if perhaps some of you ladies on Mother's Day are looking at this text and saying, why is it only adopted as sons? Why can't we have some adopted daughters here too? And I think even in that, Paul is telling us of the greatness of God's grace. For you see, adopted daughters had no rights. They could not earn an inheritance. They did not have the same carry of the name. And you see, what Paul is telling us is that in Jesus Christ, both men and women are adopted with full rights and privileges in the family of God. They are all sons, as it were, with the rights and privileges of the children of God. They are entitled to all of the benefits, a closeness with God, to be protected and provided for by God, to be disciplined by the Lord our God. We inherit all of these things as our own blessings because God has chosen and predestined us to be a part of his family. All of this is predetermined by God. That's what predestined means, to determine beforehand. God had determined beforehand to bring us into his family and to make us his children. Before we had done anything, before we deserved anything, God set his love upon us. The third thing that we see here this morning are the blessings that come to us through the salvation that the Lord brings. The first are blessings that we experience ourselves. Look at verse 4. We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. The first blessing that we experience is holiness, which again is the opposite of the way the world thinks. The world thinks we need to clean up our act and be holy so that God would love us. The Bible teaches us that God chose us and set his love upon us so that we might be holy. You see, election reminds us that we are bought with a price And that we are called to be holy because God has chosen to make us holy. And our holiness comes not from what we do, but it comes from Jesus. I think this is what Paul is getting at when he says we are to be holy and blameless. You remember this word blameless is used often in the scripture of the sacrificial lamb. It's actually used of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. That it is pure and blameless. And we can be holy and blameless because of who Jesus is and what he has done. We also have a blessing that the Lord brings to us in the love of God. Paul says at the end of verse 4, In love he predestined us for adoption. Now oftentimes when we start to think about the doctrine of election, we are put off by it because we think it is cold. We think it is theoretical. But it's not so for Paul. You see, Paul says that we are chosen by God in love. And this is that great Bible word for love, agape. 
a sacrificial, covenantal kind of love that God initiates with us. It's the same kind of love described in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, God loved the world in this way that he gave his son. And God loved his people in this way that he chose them for redemption. We are the objects of the love of God. The third blessing that we experience is something called union with Christ. We will see this over and over again throughout this letter. It is one of Paul's favorite phrases. We see it in verse 1 amongst other places. That the saints are in Christ Jesus. More than 150 times, Paul will use some combination of in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, or in him throughout his writings. And what he means in this theme is that all of our blessings come from being united to Jesus. Our faith comes from being united to Jesus. Our spiritual blessings come from being united to Jesus. Our election comes from being united to Jesus. Our adoption comes from being united to Jesus. The grace that we receive comes from being united to Jesus. It is that old dear saying that saints cling to. I am his and he is mine. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if you have given up of your own working and said to yourself, I can only be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you are found in Jesus. That is why at the great judgment, God our Father looks upon you and sees not your sins, but the righteous robes of Christ. You are united to him and everything that is his is yours. This is a great blessing that we experience. Finally, there are also blessings that we witness as we think about our salvation. And Paul begins to speak of these. The first is the sovereignty of God. We've seen this over and over again in this passage. It is God who is choosing. It is God who is predestining. It is God who is in control of everything. I know this is very difficult for modern people to believe. But God is not dependent on us. He is the one who is sovereign and in control. God is not up in heaven wringing his hands saying, I hope somebody believes in me. I hope somebody will read my Bible. Oh, no. No, God is the sovereign king. He is the one that brings salvation to a people who are lost. And we ought to be glad that God has a will and that he is in charge. Because if we were in charge, we would will ourselves to hell. We would long for only wickedness and sin. It is God's good pleasure that brings about salvation. It is his will that makes all of this possible. We also witness the work of God in our midst. What is Paul describing but God making us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ? What is Paul describing but that God builds up his church by his work? God is at work. And as we see this, we see the glory of the work of the Lord. 
For this is the third and final thing that we witness. We witness the glory of God. This is where Paul ends up in our passage this morning. Look at verse 6. All that he has been describing is to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul has talked about so many blessings that come to us. And he could have ended finishing by focusing on how much he has changed. He could have focused on all he has done for God. He could have talked about all of the blessings that had come to him, but instead he ends by focusing on the glory of God. He says it is all for God's glory. He does this over and over again. He does it in verse 6. He does it again in verse 12. And then again in verse 14. All to the glory of the grace of God. When you think about salvation, when you think of your redemption, When you think of the forgiveness of sins, how do you think about it? Are you drawn to praise the living God? Who for nothing that was good in you, set his love upon you and drew you to himself and showed you the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice for your sins so that you might be freed from sin and that you might know righteousness and holiness. This is... The story that Paul is unfolding. And he begins here by setting it before us, by telling us of the greatness and the majesty of God. As we go through this book of Ephesians, we will see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory over and over again. It is a reminder to us that God deserves our praise, that he is the glorious one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for reminding us that it is your work that is sufficient, not ours. That it is your love that is first, not ours. That you have chosen for yourself a people undeserving. We do not merit your love. We do not merit your choice. But you, O Lord, are gracious and good. And we thank you for it and we sing your praises. Lord, we ask this morning that you would remind us to be a thankful people. To sing your praises to others. That they might hear how glorious you are. That they might come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.